0: Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the Resilience Advantage, a 12-episode series created by US Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Rees, the Executive Director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 10, The Toolbox I worked at the support shop at Cal Poly Slow. It's a place where students can come build and work on their projects. The shop is abundant with machines that cut wood and metal in many different configurations. However, the support shop would not be complete without the tool room. Inside the tool room, students were allowed to rent tools such as hammers, wrenches, saws, or drill bits to complete their projects. Some students loved the library. I loved the tool room.
1: It's good that you bring up tools, Audrey. This reminds me of Lori Schumann's interview, where she talks about the various policy and incentivization tools that we need to keep in our bag so that we can turn resilience from just a good idea into reality.
2: Lori Schumann. Hi, my name is Lori Schumann.
0: She's the National Director for Enterprise Community Partners Resiliency and Recovery Program. Their goal is to create opportunity for low and moderate income households by protecting affordable housing from a variety of shocks and stressors across the nation. So Lori, I know that you've done a lot of work around helping communities develop resilience in recovering from natural disasters. But in the past few years, we've been dealing with an ongoing crisis. Can you say something about what resiliency might mean for us now that we're dealing with the COVID pandemic?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. What does resiliency mean today for the millions of Americans that have been experiencing the extreme uh, impacts from the COVID pandemic uh, and at the same time experiencing uh, a a complete uh, threat of uh, storms and fires and earthquakes, uh, and concurrently dealing with the impacts from COVID, the economic impacts, which are creating such enormous pressures and challenges for communities. Uh, and and we have yet to see the full impact and scope of this event. Um, we know that there are so many millions of Americans that have been struggling for years to deal with the enormous pressures that climate change presents um, as well as dealing with a tumultuous and volatile economy uh, and also dealing with the longstanding uh, legacy of racism um, that has created so much exposure for communities around the nation. So resiliency for many communities means something very different than what it may mean for a public sector uh, or even for enterprise. That's true. Resiliency can't easily be defined
0: until we take into account the different circumstances people are experiencing. From listening to past interviews on the resilience advantage, I've come to think of resiliency as the ability to bounce back after disaster. And this requires effort from the community as a whole. Resiliency can't happen in a vacuum and it can't be effective unless different parts of the community are working together to benefit the common good. The way
2: that we... Perceive of or conceive of resiliency is the idea that communities will uh, need to be able to adapt to changing conditions and changing, uh, specifically climate conditions and shocks, and that they will be able to recover and bounce back, and in fact um, be able to thrive uh, amidst this kind of challenge uh, and and be be uh, have a better situation than uh, prior. We have to look at some of the many um, issues that the communities are facing and the kind of supports that are needed to, to support this, this, this effort. We also know that a lot of communities that we serve and work, work with um, are quite resilient. They've been struggling for decades, uh, generations, in fact, to deal with all of these risks um, and these challenges. And so they've exhibited and demonstrated their incredible re- resiliency and endurance amidst this. So I think there's a balance and a negotiation between the structural term of resiliency and the, um, the, the reality that so many of these communities are so strong, and we need to leverage that as we think about the structural um, structural supports for communities.
0: Communities have different struggles, which make it harder for some to join in the resilience movement. This reminds me of a photo I saw floating around online. There's a fence, and three people standing behind trying to look over the fence. The first person is tall, so they do not have a problem looking over the fence. The second person is of average height and needs a stool to stand on to see over the fence. The last person is the shortest. They're using a ladder to be able to see over the fence. This is a great illustration of equity. Everyone has their different strengths and needs help in their own ways. Not everyone needs the same amount of support. So I guess if home is where the heart is, in this case, the heart is the core of the community. Are there any incentives that help building owners make environmentally friendly choices when planning to build new
2: homes? The leading uh, tool for construction of affordable housing is the low-income housing tax credit. A tool to add to the toolbox of resilience.
0: Incentivize investments in affordable housing. Is there any government funding
2: for this? There's a stack of additional funding that's layered in with LIHTEC, uh, coming from a variety of public subsidies from HUD, um, USDA has subsidy in rural communities and tribal communities and other set asides. Um, and uh, the low income housing tax credit is used to also leverage private and in- additional private investment. Uh, and the idea is that the Investment in a stable and um, well-built affordable housing complex or affordable housing site will help to inspire and catalyze um, economic development in the community and will help to um, create an anchor uh, by which the community can rest on to, to thrive and be connected to opportunity. Has there been any progression with the work done by LIHTC? We've seen an incredible amount of work to add in additional innovation to LIHTC, uh investments. So the transit-oriented development initiatives that have taken place around the nation that were a reflection of transit um, needs of communities and then the needs to have residential and commercial connected to transit and services. And all of this uh, work emerged in the 80s and 90s and, and has given us um, some really interesting and really important community models um, that are very um, a key to helping us understand how to create connected communities. And you have uh, the connection to parkland and the layering of, of support and financial support for parklands. So,
0: economic development for affordable housing, transit-oriented development incentives to connect communities, support for parklands. LITEC lays groundwork for all of this, That's incredible. These need-based incentives sound like they can really impact different communities with the support that suits them. So take this another step. Do communities that are already more economically stable have funding opportunities like this?
2: Are there programs like this still running today? You have funding sources that help address efficiency of buildings and utilities that have now been layered into this sort of stack of uh, investment into communities. Um, And then there are funds like the Opportunity Zone Fund and other funds that have come across over the decades to help support uh, thriving communities. How could you see this connecting with our drive towards greater resilience? I would offer that there's an opportunity today in 2020 to start thinking about how to layer in uh, some funding to support mitigation and resiliency on par with what we did with TOD. Uh, On par with what we did with empowerment uh, investments, that there needs to be a concerted effort by uh, both public and private markets to invest in the resiliency and climate adaptation of communities. Uh, It will be an effort that will help uh, double down on investment for low income communities and communities that have been uh, traditionally um, disinvested in communities that have experienced redlining Uh, Communities of color that have experienced a legacy of racism and disinvestment. Pause. Let's back up to redlining. A
0: lot of people aren't crystal clear on what redlining is. Communities, minority communities in 239 cities were literally outlined in red ink on maps made by Homeowners Loan Corporation in 1935 to indicate that they were hazardous for investors and lenders. That meant no loans, mortgages, financial and social services, no opportunities. Poor communities got poorer. Now, the term refers to any practice in which financial services are withheld based on race or socioeconomic factors. This practice has been a huge disadvantage for minority communities impacted, as it has prevented them from experiencing any kind of equity. So Lori, tell me about redlining.
2: And what are you calling reparative restoration? There needs to be reparative restoration where more money is invested in climate vulnerable communities of color and working class communities, recognizing the incredible burden that they have borne over generations. uh, We need to make sure that we safeguard our most vulnerable communities by by doubling down on investment. And there are vehicles and mechanisms we can leverage such as the Community Reinvestment Act, a foundational tool for our industry, for the CDFI industry, for communities around the nation uh, that receive investments from banks as a result of the CRA legislation. It's great to know that
0: the Community Reinvestment Act can be a valuable tool and can be a starting point
2: for so much more. Why does so much ride on it? Uh, the CRA legislation actually Uh, acknowledges that there needs to be more investment in communities facing risk and recovering from disaster. Uh, I would love to see the CRA used and leveraged more uh, robustly to support mitigation and adaptation in communities uh, at risk.
0: What are some other ideas? Would a rating system be a good tool for lenders to use to create more incentives for resilience?
2: Um, I think it would be great to have a rating system that incorporates some ongoing electronic monitoring or virtual monitoring to help these owners figure out when there's leaks and when a storm is coming, where they should patch their work. Um, a Rating system will help us start the conversation about how to quantify their risk and quantify their improvements. We are desperate for a uh, way to quantify the return on investment for this work. And how would a rating system help to quantify the ROI? So a rating system would help us start thinking about a benchmark. And a benchmark is what we need in the industry to help us think about where buildings are at with respect to their resiliency. Um, in a community, for example, if you have a benchmarking based on a rating system, the city can then use that information to go into FEMA and say, we'd like to apply for hazard mitigation grant because we're looking to improve HVAC performance in the buildings. And here's why we know that there's a need for performance. Here are the gaps. Here's the rating and the scores of the buildings that we need to prioritize. Having a rating system can really make a lot more of a difference than I realized. How else can it help? So the rating system will not only help the owners, it'll help the regulators and the program directors and the housing departments figure out where their greatest vulnerability is as they seek investment as they look to uh, create bond programs, um, as they look to leverage their HUD block grants um, and apply for future looking grants and even look at the private sector and corporate sector to support our resiliency. Another tool to add to the toolbox.
0: So Lori, I'm curious about something else you brought up. You said some communities need more assistance than others or some need a different kind of help than others. How do agencies account for these disparities?
2: So when we refer to disadvantaged communities, we're often referring to communities that are living with lower incomes, communities that have been politically and socially disenfranchised, like many tribes across the nation, like many communities of color across the nation that have been battered by legacy of policies that have disenfranchised them, their rights, their economic prosperity, their ability to navigate in a world that's increasingly become much more complicated and mired in administrative burden. And when we're dealing with communities that have been disenfranchised, we must understand that there are historical precedents that have put these communities at vulnerability and exposure to climate change. One of the policies that has been incredibly damaging has been the policy of redlining, which, has, which goes back generations and was a policy that essentially uh, was adopted by the private sector, by banks, uh, that would essentially grade communities based on their ability to be investable. And communities would be graded like we grade restaurants today, A very good. B, not so good. C, eh, D, bad investment. And the red communities that were literally redlined on the maps that were produced for banks were communities that banks would stay away from. And therefore, no investment, no financial investment or even resource or political investment was made in these communities. So infrastructure, housing, Not even banks were able to do business in these communities. And this policy, these sets of policies were discriminatory, uh, retaliatory, and basically um, created a great deal of uh, disenfranchisement and inequity uh, between these communities. So if we fast forward to today, these same communities that were redlined, uh, that had experienced disinvestment in infrastructure that may protect their housing and, and buildings from coastal surge or even basic transportation access was not there. Um, and as a result, these communities are today more exposed to heat, more exposed to uh, flooding, uh, which comes in the form of precipitation and surge and uh, are communities that need more investment, not less. So these efforts need to be targeted to address each community's specific
0: needs. Which makes sense because the way that the climate changes is different everywhere. Sometimes the climate seems to change differently even in the same neighborhood. I remember one time I drove through a neighborhood during a heat wave. It was blasting sunlight on one block and then all of a sudden, a beautiful shady street on the next. I think it's key to make sure that communities know about these tools we're discussing. Sometimes it's just a matter of getting the word out there about these resources. But
2: what is the bigger picture for them, given the damage already done? So when we think about investing in communities that are disadvantaged, we need to think about uh, historically what has happened and reparative uh, reconstruction, which understands and acknowledges um, that the legacies like redlining have put communities uh, at a a disadvantage and so that they need to be brought um, to a level where these communities can access the same resources that More affluent communities can access Um, good roads, state of repair for infrastructure like wastewater and electric uh, and and given not only a shot, but a hand to support development and fortification of these communities. So when we talk about the new Inflation Reduction Act, uh, there's several billion dollars allocated for environmental justice, which is a, a step forward. Uh, understanding that some communities have been at a disadvantage and need specific and strategic resourcing. When we think about investment in these communities that we consider uh, leadership and the voice in these communities that can help steer some of this investment um, to be used uh, in the right way and in accordance with um, historical and uh, future need. Um, Leaders on the ground can help advise this process, and that local community members are hired and trained to deploy some of these these strategies. Uh, that is the way we bring equity and, and justice forward, by working together with communities to not only repair the, the past ills, uh, but build forward together with a shared vision uh, of what things need to be like. How about tax credits? Would this help low-income families? Well, it's a a great question. There's no simple answer. The way that information has been uh, structured around risk and resiliency building, it's often developed by and for policymakers, academic institutions and stakeholders that may have a specific set of technical language that they use that is quite inaccessible to the average person. Um, It is really critical that we start to translate these very technical reports and assessments into actionable language that folks can understand. You know, I think that it also is a matter of ensuring that the technical folks understand the language that is used on the street, if you will. Uh, So, you know, if you speak to an individual in the agriculture business or a private sector business owner, Um, or a resident of a housing facility, they will have a language that may not be understood by the technocrats. So it's really critical we have an intermediary to translate these needs and to create information that's actionable and that folks can respond to. What do
0: you mean exactly
2: by translate? Can you give an example? You know, when when we do, for example, a hazard mitigation plan or a climate assessment, traditionally, these have been highly scientific reports that provide us with information around climate change, but they don't enable us to take action. They are simply giving us and describing to us what is happening. But I would offer, you know, that we make these reports and these these tools available and, and actionable. And I think that this has been a real challenge for many generations because Often the people that understand what's happening in the communities that have been sort of citizen scientists uh, don't always get engaged around these issues. And, you know, the tools for engagement are limited, have been limited. And I I think that there's some interesting stuff coming out of the federal government now when we talk about using videos or using um, creative platforms to talk about these issues. That's where we start to be able to create a bridge between those that need to be engaged and those that um, need to do the work.
0: Wow, so many tools. We might need to upgrade to a tool room. Lori, in your opinion, what might be the most effective tool?
2: So FEMA has just come out with a really good set of tools to help communities understand their risk. It's the Risk Rating 2.0 tool that's a national platform that has enabled communities to understand the risk from climate and the risk as it relates to their social vulnerability. This is a tool that's really state of the art. It's been a very important tool to help create more accessible information for communities. Uh, My company, Enterprise Community Partners, also has a tool called Portfolio Protect, and we do the same thing, which is we help communities understand or housing owners understand their risk around climate change as it relates to their vulnerability and the hazard. So, These two tools are really wonderful because basically it allows you to easily and quickly get informed.
0: Evan, Lori talked about so many tools that can be used to advance the resilience movement. How exciting.
1: Yes, I'd say a big reason for our success at the USRC was the example that Lori Schumann helped set with Enterprise about using all the tools at our disposal to achieve great things. It's not enough to just know about resilience. We need to be able to find tools to help make it a reality.
0: I think it's important that we integrate resilience into the classroom setting for students like me. Maybe this podcast can become part of the curriculum. So who's going to be our next interview?
1: Well, since we're talking about the tools that communities can use, I think it would be good to talk to Professor Henry Burton from UCLA. In our interview, Professor Burton talked about how communities react to disasters when their resilience is put to the test. This is the focus of his research.
0: Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Lori Schumann and the Enterprise Community Partners Resiliency and Recovery Program, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Henry Burton, a professor at UCLA that uses a systems-based approach to teach students about the benefits of enhancing seismic resilience.